Hey there, my name is Lily, and you're listening to Mindful Admissions, a podcast by Strive to Learn. This episode of Mindful Admissions is a recording of a live workshop that our founder, Josephine Borman, hosted at the Newport Beach Public Library this summer. Thanks to our partnership with the library, we've been able to offer workshops like this one, which covers everything you'd ever need to know about the SAT and ACT, as well as free proctored practice tests and other services. The SAT and ACT were confusing, in my opinion, before COVID happened. And with all of the recent changes, we've had a lot of requests to talk about the tests on Mindful Admissions. If you're planning on taking a test to submit your scores to colleges, or if someone in your life is planning to, I'd grab a pen and paper and get ready to take notes. Josephine is going to bring up a long list of helpful resources, insider tips, and hard-won knowledge, all of which can help make testing easier and more successful. All right, I think that about covers it. Let's go to Josephine at the Newport Beach Public Library. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm in my home right now here um, in Costa Mesa. I do have some pets. So you may see a cat in the background at some point as the whole working from home environment um, allows us to share our pets <laughs> and their eccentricities with everyone. So that's always exciting. And I definitely have gotten to know my coworkers pets much better than I ever thought I would. Okay, so while you guys are answering the polls, I'm also going to put up an exercise that I really love because I'm asking you guys to answer questions. So I'm also going to answer some questions. This is the website of um, Ethan Sawyer, who is the college essay guy. He creates a lot of wonderful free resources um, for students who are wanting to um, apply to college and, and don't know where to start. So um, just loved giving him a shout out because he has so much free stuff. So it's, it's really great for students like, how do I write my essays? And you can go on on there and see everything. But he has these great exercises. And this is a little exercise where I thought that maybe you guys could choose one of these questions and write it in the chat and I will answer it. That way, you know, I wasn't able to prepare it. Um, you can get to know me a little bit better while we're waiting for everyone else to pop in here. Um, and I can answer something just off the top of my head for you guys to get to know me. So what makes me nostalgic? Woo. You know, I was a little nervous um, putting this exercise up and knowing I can't prepare because there are like a hundred questions on here. So what makes me nostalgic? It's a good one. Um, I have a specific story for that, actually. Um, so I'm from Germany, born and raised. And I moved here when I was 20 years old um, and went to college here. So my whole family, my grandparents, my, my, my parents, they're all still in Germany. Um, and I wasn't able to see them during COVID for a year and a half, even though I usually see them every half year. And so for Christmas, um, I made, um, for my boyfriend and his family, I made a traditional German dinner that my grandma always cooks for Christmas. And I took the first bite and just tears filled my eyes because I was so filled with nostalgia for you know, my family and going home and not having been able to do that. So just all the scents and flavors um, of that meal um, really kind of took me there. So that's definitely something that makes me nostalgic. It's kind of the old style German food, which I only eat like once a year, but you know, it's that, that nostalgia. It's, you know, mom, grandma, family, culture taking you back. Um, we have a couple others in here. I'm going to answer those a little bit later um, so that we can get started, but have a few breaks in between, right? Because we're looking at a kind of a dense topic here. So 
I'm going to get started um, and we're going to go from there. But um, I'd love for you guys to also think a little bit about what makes you nostalgic, right? I answered it. Think about it a little bit. Maybe a good way to start off your, your weekend. Um, so my name is Josephine. Um, I've been a tutor and test prep expert uh, for a really long time. Um, like I just said, I came here as an international student. So one of the things that I did to help pay for college um, was that I was a tutor. So I started as a tutor. I tutored statistics, Spanish, and German. Um, and then later, um, I actually started doing test prep. And when I started, I was like, okay, this is going to be the absolutely most boring thing on the planet, but I have to pay the bills. And then I started working with students and I realized, wow, this is awesome. Like, this is so fun because I have to be really creative as a teacher to help a student who is not standardized fit into the standardized box in a way that makes them feel more confident instead of less confident because these tests can be really rough on students' mental health, I would say and on their stress levels. Um, so that's really what got me into it. And I got really excited about it. Um, and everyone, you know, all my friends and family, I think I'm crazy that that was actually exciting to me. But I've been doing that for over 15 years. I'm also an independent educational consultant, which is just a fancy term for college admissions counselor. Um, because I was an international student here and um, to first-gen immigrant and the first generation of my family, going to college in the U.S., I really had no idea how to handle the system. I didn't know how to really get free money for college. I didn't know how to write the essay. And I was very self-taught. And I made it through and, and I got good scholarships. So I really want to share all my knowledge about that with other students. Um, so how to navigate applications and getting money for college. And that's why I founded Strike to Learn in 2013. So we offer tutoring from my stats background, test prep, because I love it, and college admissions consulting. Um, we do virtual and in-home services, and we've helped over a thousand students um, over the course of the last um, eight, eight years or so. Um, so it's always really exciting to be able to kind of share our knowledge. So we're really, really happy to be here today. Um, I also have two of my colleagues helping me out in the chat. Um, we have William Jackie and Rachel Heilbronner. So they have their cameras off, but they're just gonna help out in case I have any issues here in case you're wondering who else um, the people hanging out here are. So let's talk about these tests, the SAT and the ACT. So what do these tests measure, right? I think that's, that's a really big question. So what they say they measure is college readiness, right? Of course. Why do you take them? You take them to apply to college. So they must be measuring college readiness. So I want to do a little case study, a little sample student. So we're going to take a look at Margo. So Margo took the SAT. She got a composite of 1,200, which is not too bad. It puts her in the 74th percentile. Um, so pretty decent. Her math was kind of worrisome to her. She was only in the 50th percentile, which means average. So that's actually fine, right? But she just felt really like, oh, man, like, does this mean I can't apply to college? Is this this? Is this not a good score, right? So she was pretty worried um, back then when she took it. So let's take a look at what she actually ended up doing in college. So she did go to college. She got in. She went. Uh, she ended up doing a dual bachelor's degree in psychology and ethno ethnographic documentary. And she held a 4.0 cumulative across her four years of undergraduate studies, 
which allowed her to graduate summa cum laude. She went on to graduate school and got a master's in um, ethnographic documentary. Sorry, in that, that was her bachelor's, I apologize. She got a master's in visual and media anthropology. Um, so I can see here, most of you guys are, are so some of 15% are rising seniors, and then we have a lot of rising juniors. Okay, great, great. And then we also have a lot of rising sophomores. So welcome, welcome. You guys are early in the game. I love it. Um, okay, and then we have parents and students both. Wonderful. And most of you guys have not taken it. And we'll talk about why, right, very soon. So um, thank you guys for sharing. So let's let's go and take a look at um, what Margot ended up doing in her adult years. She actually went on to teach at Chapman University, and she also founded her own company. So would you guys consider that, you know, Margot's score of 1,200, and specifically her percentile for math, the 50th percentile would have predicted that she gets a 4.0 cumulative while doing a dual bachelor's. Some of you might've thought she's shooting a little high. Maybe she's not that capable, right? Maybe she should take it easier and not take such a high course load, but she did it. And she went on to adult successfully. So Margot is me, it's my middle name. Um, I was definitely really, you know, I felt really weird about my SAT score. Um, I, I knew that I scored high on the reading and writing. I was happy, but the math, man, that's the one I studied so hard for. And I had a lot of trouble. Now, mind you, the test was a little bit different than, um, since they have changed the test twice in the last 15 years, but, um, I, you know, really looking back, I was like, this did not at all show how ready I was for college. I was very ready for college, um, as my grades showed, but my SAT score was very average, um, and my math score definitely didn't reflect my abilities. So, you know, what, what can we really learn from that? I think a really important part to know is that you're not just a test score, right? Your test score isn't everything that the colleges look at. So let's take a look at what, what do colleges look at when you're sending in your application? So, of course, your application, right? They're looking at your transcript, grades. They want to see that you're showing passion. The way that you can do that is telling them about your extracurricular activities with a resume or activities list. They take a look at your letters of recommendation, at least most of them do. And they took a look at, take a look at your essays that you write. Um, and then there's the SAT and ACT. So they take a look at that as well. Um, we're going to talk more about changes that may have happened around that. But these are kind of all the moving parts. So it really shows us that most colleges really use a holistic approach. And the SAT and ACT are just one of many factors that will really make your college application successful. So let's take a look at um, the GPA versus the SAT or ACT. Which one do you think is weighted heavier? When you're applying to college, they get both your GPA and your transcript, you get that, and they get your SAT or ACT score. Put in the chat. Who thinks the SAT score is weighted heavier? Who thinks it's that giant rock there pulling, pulling it, the thing down? And who thinks it's the GPA? GPA. Oh, good, good, good. Wow. Unanimous vote for GPA. That is absolutely correct. So your SAT score is definitely not as important as your GPA when it comes to applying to college. Look at you guys. I, you guys could be doing this webinar. I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> Um, so let's really take a look at what does, what predicts success in college, right? Because these tests claim to 
predict um, college readiness. So this was a really, really big study done on, uh, it included 33 institutions. And as you can see, um, over 41,000 um, actual data points um, of those 33 universities and colleges that were included here. And we can really see here that there's a very high, very, sorry, very strong correlation between high school GPA, what you see on the bottom, and on the vertical axis, you see the college cumulative GPA. So we can see that they're very correlated, right? Correlated means that you have a high high school GPA, uh, there's a high likelihood that you also are a person who has a high college cumulative GPA. Um, so it can be used as a predicting factor, even though it's, it's just a correlation. Now let's take a look at how SAT scores correlated with college cumulative GPA. This is a 2014 study. Not so much, right? It's kind of a cloud. Being a statistics tutor, I always say, when it's a cloud, it means the relationship is really not very strong. The correlation is moderate or weak. Versus over here, we can draw a clear line, right? So this is just really interesting data because you can even see here between students who didn't submit a score and who did, um, the graduation rate was pretty much the same, right? And you can see that here again in, the, in here. You can see that even though these, the non-submitters, the students who applied without a score had, but they took the test, decided to apply without it, right? That's why there's still the data of what they had. Had a 1041 versus the submitters had an 1154, but there was no significant difference in their college GPAs nor in their graduation rates. So I just want to point this out. Because, you know, what do they measure? We say they measure college readiness. There's a benchmark on your, on your little score report that you get. But really, that is not what they measure. So what do they measure? What do you guys think? What do you guys think they measure? Yeah, right? Crickets. I can see crickets. <laughs> Ability to study, okay, okay. The baseline knowledge, test-taking skills. Measure how we can work under stress. Great, these are some great things. And I think all of those you can really boil down to, they measure how well you do on a timed multiple choice test, right? The idea, um, here, that someone wrote in the chat on how we can work under stress, right? Timed, time test. Test taking skills, yep, multiple choice tests. You know how to deal with that. Um, ability to study, Nika said. You know, oftentimes they don't measure that. For some students they do, for others they don't. I have had students who prepared incredibly well for these tests and really knew their stuff, were scoring pretty well on practice tests, took the real test, bombed it significantly low, very, very low score, 14, 15, 17 on the ACT. And they're like, but I, I studied so hard and, and I know my stuff. And they just really struggled with the testing environment. So I want to make clear that what they don't measure is they don't measure how smart you are. They don't measure how worthy you are. They don't measure how hard you work. And they don't measure how well you'll do in college. And they're only one part of your application. There is a silver lining though to all of this. Preparing really well to take these tests 
really allows you to practice the skills that will make you feel ready for college. So here are some of the skills that if you are preparing for these tests, you are automatically practicing, right? Because you're independently preparing for them. Whether you have a tutor or not, there's still, you know, a lot of independent work for you. It's not mandated by school. You're not learning it, um, you know, at the same pace as your friends. Like there's, there's a lot of independence there. So you're bound to learn some time management skills, some good study habits. You're preparing for a goal that's far away. That's a few months out and really learning how to, you know, have that long-term preparation. You're brushing up on your basic reading and math skills. You, you're engaging in critical thinking, hopefully, <laughs> and you're doing some test-taking and stress management. All of these things will allow you to be more successful when you go to college. So although the tests themselves may not measure college readiness the way that, you know, it is told to us that they do, they do really allow you to practice your college readiness skills. So, I mean, we're all here because, you know, we know they have something, these tests have something to do with um, college acceptances, right? So let's really talk about what, what has changed. A lot, a lot has changed, right? I'm going to talk about the little things first, and then we're going to do the deep dive into what everyone's worried about. So let's talk about the smaller changes first. So the SAT test, the, the one that you guys all know as the SAT, it's called the SAT 1 or SAT reasoning test, it dropped the essay. It used to have an optional essay, but then in January, the College Board announced, you know what, starting right now, we're going to drop the essay, we're going to refund you your money if you did sign up for it with the essay. And, you know, we're just going to scrap the whole thing. So the ACT still has an optional essay, but since the SAT no longer offers that, colleges don't require the essay anymore because colleges don't make a distinction between the SAT or the ACT. They don't have a preference. They just want you to take the one that, you know, really shows your strengths more and maybe doesn't show your weaknesses as much. The one that you're more comfortable with and the one that you can score higher on. So, Within that, it means that they can't just require you to take the essay because that would mean they're requiring you to take the ACT. Well, really, you could take the SAT or the ACT. So there's no, no longer really a reason to sign up for the ACT with the optional essay, except to get some more experience of writing an essay under time, um, which is a great experience to have if, if you're seeking for that extra challenge. Um, SAT2, which were called the SAT subject tests, they were scrapped altogether. They are no longer administered. I'm not going to in go into that because we are talking about SAT and ACT, not SAT subject tests. Um, but feel free if you do have questions, pop your questions in the Q&A. Um, you can do that while I'm talking and doing this whole presentation. We do have Q&A time at the end, and I'll go through and answer everything in the Q&A. So please feel free if you, you know, have some questions in mind, just pop them in there and we can get to them then. Um, Let's talk about the ACT changes. So the ACT was going to do section retesting, which meant that after you've taken a full length ACT, you could sign up for a second test and only do one section. So if you bombed the math, you could take only the math on the second try and then they would combine it to a super score. Now they decided not to do that since test centers were very, very limited, right? Um, which makes a lot of sense. They wanted to really make sure more students can test overall rather than trying to get in the section retesting. So they will be offering that in the future, but not for this round of ACTs. They also just recently started offering a super score 
score report. So that means that you can select to send your super score to universities. And a super score is the score of the highest sections combined to one overarching score, even if those sections were taken at different test sittings. So let's say you took the ACT twice on your first ACT, you did really well on math and science. On your second one, you did really well on um, English and reading. So if that's the case, then you can combine those from those two sittings and it gets sent. Now, here, here's the thing though about this. Everyone's like, oh my God, this is great. And they will never see my other scores. But what happens is that, that you, they will see the super score and they'll also see all scores from the tests that you that were factored into the super score, right? So they still see your other lower scores. Um, schools that super score, there aren't that many for the ACT. There are only about 100 colleges in the US that do super score for the ACT. There are a lot more for the SAT, about 50% of colleges. Um, so the schools that do offer a super score, they usually don't see your other scores either, right? So it's really more for the student. I think a lot of students missed out on being able to get a super score because maybe they only sent their highest section score, sorry, their highest sitting, um, their highest score from one sitting, right? And so if they do that and don't realize, oh my God, I could have a super score if I also sent my lower score because on my lower score, the math was higher, right? So I think that's really why the ACT changed this because it offers a lot more transparency to students. But from the college side, it still works the same way as it did. So those are pretty small changes. So let's let's talk about the real change, okay? I mean, we all have lived it, right? Um, there has been a pandemic, and it has shifted a lot in our lives. And of course, it has shifted a lot about the way that we apply to colleges. So let's take a look at really what happened. So the pandemic really closed a lot of test centers. I know, as you said in the in the poll, a lot of you guys have not taken these tests, maybe because you're younger, you're a junior, a rising junior, a rising sophomore. So you're just starting to think about all this. But if you're a rising senior and you're here and you haven't taken the test, it's probably because your test center was closed, right? So because of the closure of all these test centers um, in California, there were only 16% of sites available compared to the previous year, 16, 84% were closed. It looked really different in some other states. In Florida, um, I believe over 80% was still available because they just didn't have the same closures as California, right? So we have a really specific situation going on here. I mean, across the nation, a lot were closed, but especially in California, a lot of them were closed and people were not able to test. Um, I see Connor has a question about what year should we take the ACT or SAT. I'm going to show you guys a timeline. Um, in the second half of the presentation about exactly where, if you're a rising senior, what should you be looking at when to take the ACT or SAT? So we're definitely going to get to that comment. Thank you so much for your question. Um, okay, so let's take a look at how universities really reacted to this. So college admissions changed, right? And they started really, more and more colleges started implementing what's called a test optional policy. Um, we also have a test blind and test free policy that was implemented. So let's talk about both of these. Let's start with the test blind or test free. As you can see, I love watching friends. So here, here I go with my tips. Um, so if a school is test blind or test free, it means that your SAT or ACT score will not be considered as a part of your college application at all. 
That means you can send them your score 100 times. They will not look at it. They will not factor it in. Okay? So what's an example of universities that you all, because of our location, are probably very familiar with? It's the UCs. The UCs are permanently test-free. The UCs will no longer consider SAT or ACT scores as part of your application. They used to have a 14-factor review. They took the SAT, ACT scores out, so now it's a 13-factor review. So they look at 13 factors about you, but your test scores are not one of them, which means that your GPA, you know, is an even bigger rock on that scale we were looking at earlier. Um, so, so that's really important to know. Um, that factors into trying to figure out should I take these tests or not, right? Which we are also going to talk about. We'll have a little checklist, checklist to look at. Okay, let's talk about test optional. So test optional is a bigger beast. Um, and test optional, you have two paths. So you have a choice, right? You have an option. Path one is that you apply with your SAT or ACT score. It is part of your application. You get reviewed with it. They look at all the moving parts that I was showing you guys earlier and also your SAT or ACT score. It's kind of the traditional thing that we've been used to, right? Path two is that you can choose to apply without an SAT or ACT score if you believe that your application is stronger without it or as strong as if you submit it with it, right? So this is really interesting. Um, we have a lot of options here, right? And I really want to take a deeper look at option two here because submitting them, it's like kind of a no-brainer, right? If I have a high score, yeah, why not? Um, but really taking a look at when do I decide not to submit them, right? How do I even make that choice? So one big thing that I want to say is that there's absolutely no disadvantage to not submitting your scores for admission purposes. Um, if you decide at a test optional school to apply this path two without your scores, I'm going to say it again, there's no disadvantage for admission purposes. So you can get in same way as if you applied with them. However, sometimes there are possible small disadvantages. So it's important to really do your research well. Sometimes the, the university overall might be test optional, but some of their really high scholarships might need a test. Or maybe you want to apply to their honors college and that still requires a test. Or maybe you're looking at an accelerated degree program like a bachelor to MD program and that one still requires test scores. So watch out, test optional, just because the university is test optional doesn't mean that every single program is test optional. If you're just applying general, then um, you have a lot of you know, options. Um, that's a great question, Nika. Who has test optional? Which colleges? So let's actually talk about that. That's perfect. You are reading my mind. So first of all, test optional is not new. Everyone thinks it's new because we all are talking about it now, right? Um, but COVID is really what brought it to the forefront of kind of the, the public knowledge. But test optional has been around for a long time. So the first university that went test optional was Bowdoin College in 1969. Long time ago, right? By March 2020, and I specifically chose this data point, March 2020, so pre-COVID, right before the pandemic hit, over a thousand universities, which is around 38% of US universities, were already test optional. So that's a lot, right? And a lot of my students had never heard of it, but I've always discussed this with my students when we sit down and build their college list. You know, like let's talk about some of these universities are test optional. Um, 
Of the top 250 national universities, 25% were test optional pre-COVID. And of the top 100 national liberal arts colleges, 50% were test optional. This number has grown tremendously because a lot of universities decided to go test optional when they realized that so many students weren't able to test. They really had to remove that barrier um, of access to being able to apply to college. So in the last year, you know, year and couple months, more and more universities decided to go to test optional for either one application season or for two or permanently. Um, so they're kind of doing a trial run approach and then they want to reevaluate. So what does that mean for the applicants who are applying to enter college in 2022? So the rising seniors here, listen up. Right now, and this number is growing right, right now, 1, more than 1,500 universities, which is more than 65% of American universities are test optional test line. So FairTest is a wonderful organization that has a database of all test optional schools. And William, I think my, my colleague is gonna drop this link into the chat for you guys as well. Um, and that way you can take a look at it, but we'll also send out the slides. Um, so that you can just click on it from here and, and take it, because I know this is a lot of information. <laughs> um, so we'll drop it in the chat right now, um, but you can take a look at that and they're constantly updating. It's really nice. So more and more universities are deciding to stay test optional for 2022 applicants. So that's you guys, that's our rising seniors out there. Um, now, why? Because they realized, again, a lot of students weren't able to test. I mean, looking at the June test dates, so many test centers closed, both for the SAT and the ACT again. Um, so I believe only about 20% of test centers were open. Um, this may change now, right, in California. Um, we have reopened officially, the state has reopened. So hopefully the tests that are happening this summer, July, August, September, um, are going to be able to have, you know, be less influenced by test closures. But nobody knows, right? Um, so. Like I said, William is gonna drop the fair test um, list of schools in here, but we'll also get this sent out to you after the um, um, webinar. There you go, William just sent it. Now, what does this mean for our 2023 applicants? I saw that we have a lot of rising juniors in here, right? So we don't know yet how many universities are going to decide to be test optional or test free for you guys. We just don't know. It's probably not going to be as many as are currently test optional. A lot of the universities said they're only going test optional for 2021 applicants and 2022, and then they'll go back to test required. Others said we're going to go test optional for 2021, 2022, and then we're going to reevaluate if we want to stay test optional. So we knew that pre-pandemic, 1,070 universities were already test optional. Now it's over 1,500. I think that post-COVID, it's definitely going to be more than 1,070. A lot of universities have already decided that they will permanently stay test optional. However, a lot of the test optional universities may also, the ones that said they're only trialing it out, may return to test required. So stay on top of those lists, take a look at what's happening, and the universities that you're interested in, communicate with their admissions offices and see what the deal is. They love getting emails from you guys. Um, so 
why, why should universities even go test optional? Like what's in it for them, right? That's a big question because it sounds great for students. Hey, if I do well on these tests, I submit it and it helps me. If I do badly on these tests, I don't tell anyone about it and I can still apply, right? So there's actually also a, quite a few factors that make this really exciting for universities. They end up looking like they have become more selective. And there are two main factors that come into this. For one, they end up having lower acceptance rates. So these tests are a barrier for students. Some students can't afford to test or don't have a ride to a test center um, and simply can't test. Other students have a really low score. They're stuck on it. They would need a tutor. They can't afford a tutor, so they don't test, right? So we have higher, we have a lot more applications now because we're allowing students who weren't able to test for one reason or another to also apply. So a lot of universities receive way more applications, but they can't accept way more students than normal. So that drives their acceptance rate down and makes them look more selective. Also, the students that do submit their SAT and ACT scores, they're submitting them because they're like, I feel like this is good. I feel like I did well, right? So you have a lot of students who are very proud of their scores, submitting their scores, and the students who don't really like their scores aren't submitting them, which increases the average SAT, ACT scores of the admitted class. Both of those factors put together really makes the universities end up ranking higher in national rankings. So that's, that's a huge bonus point for universities, and that is, you know, one of the reasons that you may not have thought of that would make test optional exciting for them. Another reason is that they end up getting a much more diverse applicant pool and they end up getting applicants from more underrepresented backgrounds because they now have access to a college application without having, having to take a test. Um, this is a whole different thing I could go into. So I'm just going to kind of skim over it. I'll mention it a couple more times, but let's, let's move on and see some examples. So Emory, you, you, Sorry, Emory University saw an 18% increase in applications. UCLA saw a 28% increase in applications. 28%, right? The UC system got 40,000 more applications last application cycle. This is intense, especially for you guys. Harvard, just to throw in a name everyone knows, 20% increase in applications. So who is applying? Like I said, students from underrepresented backgrounds now have more access. Um, so test optional is really helping to level the playing field and remove barriers to college access. Also, students who usually might not go for a school like UCLA because they, they have a wonderful GPA, they have a 4.5 unweighted, they've done all the extracurriculars, they feel really, really great, but they have an 18 on their ACT. These students may not have applied to UCLA in a different year, but now they can, which is another reason why we saw such a big increase in applications. And the third reason why there are so many more applications, especially to UCs, is because students wanted to stay closer to home and finances were less predictable. And these are very affordable options, the UC system. Um, so we have a question here. The acceptance rate, um, does it change for the college? Yes, the acceptance rate plummets because they have more students applying, but they're, so that number goes higher, but they only have the same number of freshmen seats available, right? If 40,000 more applied, they can't accept 40,000 more, which is the only way that the acceptance rate would stay the same. So yes, the acceptance rate definitely decreases, not because the university is doing anything differently. They didn't change anything, 
accept that. Now they're allowing students to apply without test, which means the number of students who applied drastically increased. So what do the SAT and ACT measure? We talked about this earlier. What do they measure? Right in the chat. They don't measure, oh, time management under stress, very good. They don't measure intelligence, right? They don't measure how well you'll do in college or how hard you've worked necessarily. They can, but not necessarily. What they really measure is the student's ability to take a time test. Esmeralda takes it very specifically and they don't measure your work. That's right, Nika. Okay, let's take a breather. That was a lot of information. I wanna talk about what's actually on these tests. I know a lot of you guys in here are students. So let's take a look at the tests and how they compare. So we have the SAT and we have the ACT. Okay, so let me try and not bore you too much with this, but I do think it's really important to, to talk about what's actually on these tests because after this, we're gonna talk about how do you know which test to take, right? Um, you don't have to take both. Please don't stress yourself out like that, but you do wanna know how, how, which test to take. Let me also scroll up here again <clears throat> and see someone else had asked me, there were, there were, I think there were two more brave and interesting questions. So let me, let me just throw in another answer here just to give you guys a little brain break right now. Who makes you laugh more than anyone? Probably my best friend, Nina. Yeah. She lives in London. I miss her so much. <laughs> I would say her. We've had some really good laugh cramps where, you know, it's great for your abs, but... <laughs> Not when you're sitting in class together, trying to hold it together in front of your Greek professor while you're studying abroad in Spain, I can tell you that. <laughs> okay, I hope everyone else was able to grab a little drink too. Let's talk about the tests. All right, so both of these tests have four sections. The ACT also has a fifth optional section, which would be the essay. As we just learned, the SAT no longer has that option. They're about the same length, both are about three hours if you take the ACT without the essay. The ACT has an English section. The SAT has a writing and language section. Different words, same thing, very similar. We're gonna talk more about how each section compares. They both have a reading section. The ACT has one math section. The SAT has two math sections. And the ACT has a science section where the SAT does not have a science section. We'll talk more about how each one of these sections compares, but let's take a look at the pacing first. I just said they're both about three hours, right? Two hours, 55 minutes versus three hours. Pretty much the same thing at that point, five minutes difference. But the pacing of the ACT is much quicker. You have less time per question. You only have 49 seconds per question across the whole test, and it varies by section. The SAT is a slower pace. You have a minute and 10 seconds per question. How are they scored? The ACT is scored out of a total of 36. On the four sections, you get 36 points each section, and then they get added up, divided by four. So you're averaging them out. That gives you your total score. On the SAT, it is scored out of 1,600. I know, right? Like, what were they thinking? How are, how are we supposed to know which test we're doing better on? How, how do I score you know, compare 1,200 to 25. Like, what do they have in common? Who knows? I will show you how to do that. Um, so in the SAT, you actually add up 
your main scores. So you have your writing and language section combined with your reading section, and that's going to be out of 800. And then you have your two math sections combined to one overarching math score, and that's going to be out of 800. I want you to listen really carefully. I just said the ACT has four sections and one of them, the second section, is math. The SAT has four sections and two of them, the third section and the fourth section, are math. So what happens here is that the SAT actually has a much higher weight on math as part of your overarching score. 50% of your score on the SAT comes from math. On the ACT, it's only 25% of your score. So think about that a little bit. A lot of students, when they first come in and chat with me, they're like, oh, I should take the ACT because I love STEM because they've heard there's a math and science section, right? But then I ask them, well, are you better in math? Are you better in science? Like, what is your love for STEM, right? What does it actually look like? And students who are very strong in math usually tend to be able to have a high score, higher score on the SAT, simply because it's 50% of their score. Now, of course, it's not that simple, right? So we'll talk in a, like two minutes about who should take which test. Another thing that students often say immediately after they've taken both tests is, wow, the ACT felt a lot more straightforward. It felt a lot more like a test at school. The SAT, like, you know, most questions were like that, but some questions I've never seen it asked like that. There's a little more emphasis on inference and logic on the SAT. Let's compare the sections. So we have the section that tests your knowledge of English um, on the ACT, it's called the English section. On the SAT, it's called the writing and language section. Um, both of them, I want to I point out the similarities here. And this is the section I would say is the most similar between the two tests. And remember, I've taken a lot of these. <laughs> um, both of them have a lot of grammar and usage, punctuation, structure, and rhetoric on this section. However, the ACT has a higher percentage of questions looking at grammar and usage as well as punctuation than the SAT while the SAT has a higher percent of questions focusing on rhetoric. They both do all four things. I just underlined in here what one does a little, has a little heavier weighing on than the other. Um, on the ACT, you have slightly less complex passages. On the S SAT, they're a little more complex and some of them have data graphs included. Why data? Well, remember the SAT has no science section. So instead they trickle it in to some of the other sections, all right? Um, okay, because of that, you also have more time per question, right? It's a little more complex, the passage itself, and you have some data graphs. Um, so you have 33% more time per question on the SAT when it comes to the English section. And you can see that when we see that the ACT has 75 questions in 45 minutes. It's pretty fast, right? Pretty quick pace here. The SAT only has 44 questions in 35 minutes. So think about that. Pacing is a huge, huge difference between these tests. All right, let's take a look at the math section. So both of them test the same concepts of math. Pre-algebra, algebra one, geometry. Those are the main things. Teeny bit of algebra two and trig. So, and a couple statistics questions, but those are what you should have learned in algebra one as far as stats goes. Um, some of you may have done common core, same thing, because you still have all those subjects trickled into your common core coursework. The ACT does have a stronger emphasis on geometry than the SAT. And the SAT instead has a stronger emphasis on algebra. So although they have the same topics covered, you still need to know all those, 
if you're really strong in algebra and really hate geometry, SAT might be a better option for you and vice versa. On the ACT, you have a broader range of concepts, but it doesn't go as deep. Versus on the SAT, not as many concepts, but a deeper view of them. On the ACT, they give you no formulas. And on the SAT, they do give you some basic geometry for formulas. So like area of a triangle, um, volume of a cylinder, things like that. On the ACT, you can use a calculator for all oh, questions. <laughs> on the SAT, you have the two sections. The only difference between the two sections is that the first math section, which is shorter, does not allow you to use a calculator. The second, the longer math section, does allow you to use a calculator. So that's a big, big difference here. On the ACT, you have a total of 60 math questions in 60 minutes. And on the SAT, you have a total of, across both sections, of 58 questions in 80 minutes. They're all multiple choice on the ACT. On the SAT, SAT the majority are multiple choice, but 13 of them are open answer. Hi, Haley. You definitely can use a graphing calculator. TI-84, 85, great choices. Um, there is, maybe William could you, or, or Rachel, could you guys drop in a link of the calculator requirements for Haley um, so that she could see that for the SAT and ACT? Um, yes, get a calculator, get a graphing calculator. Highly recommend it. You can see the work you're doing much better um, to keep track of everything that you're, that you're doing in the math you're calculating. So I'll put a link in there for you to see the exact uh, calculator requirements. But my big recommendation is go with TA84. You can even, even use a TA83 if you have a used one at home or TA85 if you want to get, you know, the sparkling new one. Um, that calculator will help you in college as well. So it's a good investment. They don't really lose their value. So you can resell it pretty well once you're done using it. All right, let's move on to the reading section. Um, we have four passages on the ACT with 10 questions each. So it's a total of 40 questions in 35 minutes. On the SAT, we have five passages with 10 to 11 questions each, which is a total of 52 questions in 65 minutes. The SAT focuses a little heavier on vocabulary, um, both focus on reading comprehension, and the ACT has a much more intense time constraint. So if you find yourself reading things three times before it really sinks in, the ACT might be a little more of a struggle for you on the reading section. Let's talk about the science section. So it doesn't exist on the SAT, but like I said, there are 21 questions that have graphs and data, not super intense graphs and data, pretty, pretty straightforward ones in other spaces. So on the reading, on the um, English or on the math sections. On the ACT, you have a 35 minute science section that has 40 questions. Now here's a big thing. No specific science knowledge is required for this section. It's really much more of a reading section. Reading, you say. <laughs> so I have a lot of students who, who take a diagnostic ACT, a full-length ACT practice test, and they're like, wow, the science section was completely different from what I thought it would be. So it doesn't ask for any previous knowledge. Um, what it really does is that it's an open book test about maybe an experimental procedure that is described or a hypothesis that is evaluated. And then you read the paragraphs, look at the data and graphs and answer questions. So it's all right there. So having really good reading skills is very important for the science section, especially with that pace. All right, the essay, I'm not gonna go over in depth. The ACT still has the optional essay. Like I said, no colleges are going to require it anymore because the SAT did get rid of its science section. Um, 
Now, I talked a little bit about super scoring. For the ACT, only about 100 colleges will super score, which means combining the highest individual section scores from multiple sittings. On the SAT, over 50% of all universities super score. So that's just some food for thought right there. So how do I decide which test to take, right? I've, I've mentioned a couple things, but let's, let's look at a nice little checklist, right? So if you struggle with timing, the SAT might be the better test for you. If you're good at quickly deciphering tables and graphs, ooh, you might do really well on that ACT science section. If you're strong in math, you might want to use your strength to really have that 50% of your score coming from math instead of just 25% of your score. And that's why you might choose the SAT. If you feel like, man, logic and inference questions, not my thing. I want straightforward questions that are similar to what I see in school. The ACT is probably better for you. If you tend to rely really heavily on your calculator, then that SAT no, no calculator section, the third section of the test might be a little intimidating. So the ACT might be better. If you love geometry, ACT sounds better, right? If you love algebra, SAT sounds better. <laughs> the schools on your list, if they offer super scoring for the SAT, but not the ACT, and you're scoring equally on both, you might think, okay, maybe I'll choose the SAT. If you often need to read a passage several times before you understand it, you might need more time. So the SAT might be better. But the thing is, this list goes on and on. And you might find yourself circling a lot of these, like which ones am I? And you might find, oh man, I have equal amount of check marks on ACT and SAT side. I struggle with timing, you know, but um, I love geometry, right? Oh, so that means I should take both? No, it's really more complex than that. So my big recommendation, if you're really trying to figure out which test to take is to take one full length practice test of each. It's gonna be six total hours out of your life, right? Each one is about three hours. Super, super worth it. You are gonna save yourself so much time if you actually take the time to take a full length practice test of each. Um, timing makes a big difference. Pacing, the overall sense and tone of the test, how fatigued you are when you are hitting the math sections. Because on the SAT, the math section is the second half of the test. On the ACT, the math section is the second section. So it's in the first half of the test. That might change how well you do on it, right? Same thing. SAT has the reading section first. ACT has it third. So you might want to get it out of the way in the beginning if you tend to fatigue easily on reading comprehension. So there, there's so much more to this decision than I could ever show you in this <laughs> or even this, right? So I've tried to break it down, but the only way you are going to know which test to take is really to take that full-length practice test of each. So the library is actually offering a full-length SAT and ACT test that we're going to proctor through, um, through them. Uh, and I'm going to talk about when they're happening at the end of this. So I'll let you guys know exactly when they're happening. Now, let's say you took a full-length test of each. Um, you decided to do it and, and you have your two scores. Well, there are these wonderful tables um, that you can um, take, a, take a look at to compare the two, right? Because as I said, out of 1,600 versus out of 36, how do I know what's equivalent, right? Um, so you can look at these tables. Um, there is a link to this in, in this slide, um, as I said, right there. Um, and so we'll be sending out these slides, like I said, um, after this, so that you can take a gander at all of these linked resources. 
Then once you've decided which test to take, so which, if you score similarly, choose the one that, that you hate less, okay? <laughs> I mean, nobody's going to say, wow, I love them both and I can't decide. But there might be one that you just felt a little more confident on. Choose that one if you're scoring similarly. So then pick a test date. Go on the SAT, so the College Board website or ACT.org for the ACT. Pick your test date. I recommend trying to prepare for eight to 10 weeks before, but not all of you may have that um, opportunity. So we're going to go over some timelines depending on how much time you have. And then set yourself a steady schedule. Put it on your, in your journal, on your calendar if you have a written one. Put it in your phone if that's the calendar you like to use. Set reminders. Make that a non-negotiable time slot in your, in your schedule per week and study for them because you can raise your score and it can really help you with your applications. Now, we know there's this whole, you know, test optional thing, right? So if I'm deciding whether to test, right, I want to look at what would I be using it for? So let's take a look at how to decide how to test. So my biggest piece of advice is if you don't need this test for your college application, don't take it. But the way that you might define needing it can be very different. So I'm not saying if you are applying test optional only, you shouldn't take it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you think that your application is really strong without it, and if you don't think you can get a score that would make you feel like it's adding to your application, and all of your test schools are test optional, none of them required, then yes, then you don't need it, don't take it, right? Save yourself that stress and focus on boosting other aspects of your college application. But I also don't want, to, want you to miss out on an opportunity. Let's say all of your colleges are test optional. That means that these tests are going to be additive only. They can't affect you negatively, right? So even if you decide to take it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to um, submit your score, right? You can choose which colleges to submit it to. So you might decide to submit it to some of your likely and target schools, but maybe not to reach schools. It really depends on how you score, right? So we made a little handout so that you can decide that a little more. So if you really struggle with standardized testing, and this is just this crazy monster that you're afraid of, you know, and you know all of your universities are definitely test optional, then, you know, you don't need to take the test. If you have severe test anxiety and none of your universities require this test, which if you're a rising senior right now, they probably won't unless you're applying to the Florida state system because they always require, they never got rid of them. Um, then you don't need to take the test. Remember what I said earlier, if you're applying to a university that's test optional, um, but might have test required for honors college or a combined you know bs to md program or certain scholarships then you should take the test just to make sure you have it in case you do need to submit it in case something pops out of the woodworks later on and suddenly you're like oh my god i need to submit it if you're applying to only ucs you don't need to take the test they won't look at it right so i, I have i've had about whew, two students in over 150 who would apply to only ucs because that's quite a gamble too, especially with these very, you know, with these plummeting acceptance rates because so many more students are applying. So only if you really, really feel strongly about the UCs should you, should you do that. But if you do that, then you don't need to take the test. Um, if you think 
that your GPA doesn't really reflect your abilities, but you're good at taking tests, you got a good score, you, or you think you can get a good score, then you should take the test. If you want another shot at improving your overall application, you should take the test. It's one of the few things you still have, as a rising senior, you still have an opportunity to change. And as a junior, you know, you can take it, see what you get, and then decide whether or not you want to submit it. And so if, you, if it's not going to stress you out too much, I recommend taking it. But then you decide to test. So what's next? You're going to have to decide, should I submit my score? And this is a really important one. And oh my goodness, I didn't fill out all the check marks. <laughs> Lovely. I'm going to tell you verbally and then I'm going to fix it before I send out the slides. So if you studied really hard, you took the test more than once and still feel like the score doesn't reflect your abilities, you may not want to submit your score to your universities. Um, if you're applying to only test optional or test free universities, and this is important, and your GPA is in the top 50%, of the GPAs of the most recently admitted students, you may not want to submit your score because your application is stronger with your GPA in the top 50% than if you're submitting a score that's also in the bottom 50%. You're just pulling yourself down, right? But on the flip side, if your GPA is in the bottom 50% of admitted students and your ACT score is in a higher percentile, submit it. You're showing them, hey, you know, I may have snoozed in a couple of classes, but I can do this. Like I'm ready, I'm motivated, I studied for this test. And this is one way that I'm gonna try and show you that. If you have some red flags on your transcript, like some C's or D's, you may wanna submit your score for the same reason. If you wanna show strength in a particular subject, so let's say maybe you didn't, um, you know, have the math prowess um, in freshman year that you wanted to, so overall your math scores suffered a little bit on your, um, transcripts, but you studied hard and you got a really great score on math on these tests, that's a great thing to submit to show, hey, you know, I really can do this. Also, some students have had a more non-traditional education that the universities they're applying to don't understand as well. So if you've had a Waldorf or Montessori education, or if you've been homeschooled, if you've um, you know, had a medical um, issue and therefore had a prolonged leave of absence, you may want to take this test um, as long as you, you know, score well in comparison to the admitted students previously, then you want to submit that score. Um, and again, for highly selected pro pro programs that need it, you want to submit it. Okay, so what's really important is that test optional universities will say oftentimes, hey, you can apply without your test and it's not going to impact your eligibility for scholarships or financial aid. And that's true. That's true. To a certain extent. So this, the universities that say that they aren't lying to you. It's true that there are no SAT or ACT requirements for their scholarships and financial aid if they're telling you that, right? They're not trying to trick you. However, if your entire profile as a student is elevated by you taking a test and doing really well on it, they're looking at your whole profile, right? Then you might be eligible to receive a little more merit scholarship money, not because of your that because you reached a certain benchmark score, but simply because overall you have another data point on your academics that shows that you're, you know, trying to do the best you can. So I would say, you know, if you think that you can elevate your entire profile, then it's a good idea to take the test and then you decide whether or not to submit it. 
because it can even help you get money for college. And like I said, some scholarships do still require it even at testosterone universities. Okay, so one of the last things I want to talk about as I wrap it up here um, so that you guys can ask your questions if you have any um, is a growth mindset, right? So these tests, like I said, they're stressful. Um, they're, they're not always the greatest thing to go through. But I also said there's some silver linings, right? As in learning good time management, learning stress management, learning independent work and studying. So the, the best way to get through these is to really try and employ a growth mindset. So what does that mean? It means to turn negative self-talk into motivation. That's so, right? It's like, oh, I'll just think positive. Well, it's really hard to do that. Um, so it's really the idea of learning that when you make a mistake or when you hit a wall, big challenge, it's not a failure. It is not. Mistakes and challenges are really opportunities. I, you know, I learned English as a second language. Man, I said so many things wrong. <laughs> then I learned Spanish. Again, so many things I were saying did not make sense, but I just kept talking, right? At people, as you see, I can talk. Um, and so making those mistakes really helped me learn. I never would have become fluent in either one of those languages if I hadn't fallen on my face and done some embarrassing stuff, but it doesn't matter because that's an opportunity for you to learn. This is the same thing. Turn your negative self-talk like, man, I don't understand this. Um, two, I want to learn more. Instead of telling yourself you're a failure, say, you know what? I get to try again. I can, I can try again. You know, just because I got this, this practice test isn't quite what I wanted. I can try again. Instead of just saying you're bad at this and leaving it at that, really think about, you know what? I'm going to improve. I'm going to improve in my areas of opportunity. There's a lot of research on this. This kind of shift in your mindset is really what can make you successful. It's not just the knowledge you have or how many practice drills you've done. It's really believing that a challenge is an opportunity. So I highly recommend that you guys look into growth mindset work. All right, so let's talk about the timelines. This is one of the last things we're gonna go over. I'm gonna talk about rising seniors first. So this is something that um, please, um, you know, put your email, you can send it to panelists only if you want to make sure that the other attendees don't see it. Pop your email in the chat um, so that we can send you these handouts afterwards as well. So we have a lot of different um, awesome handouts. So make sure to pop your email in the chat if that's something you'd like. Um, okay, so for rising seniors, so those of you who just finished junior year, right, you're looking, you're looking at a quick timeline. Um, I really recommend getting started right away. So we have those um, diagnostic tests available through the library. Um, next week and the following week, I'll tell you the exact dates and times in just a few slides. Um, take them, they're free. And afterwards you get to sit down with William, actually my lovely colleague here, who's helping us with the chat. Um, and he will help explain, you know, how you did on the test. You'll get a really customized score report and he'll help you figure out a good self-study plan. And then you can take that home and you can, you know, use free resources. We love recommending free resources and books as well. Um, and you know where to start and how to prepare and how to take practice tests and how to pace yourself out. If you are planning on applying early action or early decision, then you should still try to test twice if possible. It's just better to test twice because the second time a lot of students happen to have just a little score increase because the situation is no longer brand new. Um, 
So if you do that, please make sure um, to try and test in July or August for the first time, what, depending on if it's the SAT or ACT. You could also do August or September, yeah? Um, and then your last real test date would be October. That it would still be accepted by your early action, early decision universities. So as far as it goes, you know, should I do the accelerated timeline or the regular timeline? The distinction here really depends on which colleges you're going to apply to, right? If you're applying regular decision everywhere, then you can go into the regular timeline. You can space them out a little, take your first real test in August, September, and your second real test, uh, November, December, depending on SAT or ACT. You also see we put some practice tests in between, right? Practice your stuff, do your practice drills, read the books, but also take full length practice tests that you can then compare to your very first practice test that we're calling the diagnostic test. That's really, really important, right? Because you want to make sure, okay, whatever I'm doing in these practice drills, is it actually translating to a higher score, to an improvement in my score on the real test? Let's talk about our rising juniors because we have a lot of you guys here in this, um, in this webinar. So rising juniors, we want a low stress timeline. To do that, I recommend you start now. I know I'm telling you the same thing that I just told the rising seniors, um, but the rising seniors were not able to do this low stress timeline because COVID closed their test centers. For you guys, hopefully a lot more test centers will be open, especially now that California has reopened and vaccination rates are up. So I recommend taking your diagnostic tests now. School's out, you've relaxed for a week or two, hopefully, maybe a little longer, depending on where you go to school. Um, and we wanna make sure that, um, you know, you know that now is a great time to take those diagnostic tests. That way you can see, you know, which one am I doing better on, SAT or ACT? Then you decide when to take the test. I recommend taking your first real test in September or October. So if it's the ACT, I would recommend September. The SAT, I would recommend October because it's, it's um, the first Saturday in October. So they're actually pretty close together. That's in your first month of school, right? So school is just starting to pick up. Junior year isn't crazy yet. So you want to get those tests in there, your first real test. Then you take a look at that score. You decide, wow, I'm super happy, done with this, never doing it again. I got what I wanted. Or you say, okay, I want to build on that. I think I can do better. Um, then I would recommend taking your second real test um, in December. Unless, unless you have finals. If you do have finals at the same time, then don't do that, right? So when you're thinking about your testing timeline, also think about, um, you know, are you, um, where are you at with your athletics? Are you in marching band? You know, Friday nights, are you going to be at the games, either playing or cheerleading or, you know, playing your instruments? That's really important um, to keep in mind. When is your busy season with your extracurriculars? If your busy season is first half of junior year, do not do this timeline, right? This is a low stress timeline for students for whom it works, but everyone is different. Um, that's why we actually sit down with every single student and talk through this, right? Because not everyone needs to do the same thing. Not, not the same, the same thing is not right for every student. So this is what I suggest for a student who doesn't have a crazy athletic or, or, or other extracurricular commitment in the first semester versus second, because what happens when you aim to take it in your second semester for the first time, man, junior year kind of gets to you. I've seen it over and over in students that they are like, I'm going to wait just because I feel like I want to wait. Um, 
And then in second half of junior year, the AP, maybe they're enrolled in some APs, the AP tests are looming, right? They're coming up April, May. Suddenly, and you can see February, March is the first time you could test, right? They, there's no January test. So it's really important to think about that. Your load as a junior is going to be more intense at school than it ever has been in any previous year. So that's why we call this our low stress timeline, because our students who really followed this timeline, like I said, who didn't have like a massive extracurricular commitment at the same time, they were done with their tests in December of their junior year. They washed their hands of it. They were done. They felt good. They, they were confident about their score. And then they spent the second half of junior year really focusing on their grades, their GPA, as well as on actually taking a look at colleges, building their college list, um, you know, researching all that and going on college visits. So this is my recommendation. What most of my students have done that has really worked for them, um, unless you, you, you have a specific case or scenario. So some of you might ask yourself, you know, I'm a rising junior. I haven't taken enough math. I can't do well on this. Well, I want you to remember what I said earlier, um, because this is a huge, huge myth. What I said earlier is that the tests, primarily tests pre-algebra, algebra one, and geometry, and have very few questions on um, anything from algebra two, trig, or anything higher. There's no pre-calc, and there's no calculus on these tests. So what has happened with some of our students who were in calculus when they took this is they got a lower math score than they thought they would because it had been so long since they were confronted with, you know, an equation of lines and having to really figure that out because that's an algebra concept, right? Um, so it's definitely a myth that as a rising junior, you haven't taken enough math to do well. Um, and let me tell you one more thing. Um, on the SAT, 80% of the test is on pre-algebra, algebra one, and geometry, sometimes more, it depends on the test. The questions vary a little bit. And on the ACT, it's 85%. So you can score above the 90th percentile on both the SAT and ACT math without having taken algebra two trick. So that's really, really important um, to know. Okay, so <laughs> um, let's take a look. I think we have another question here. For rising seniors, there are still two SAT test dates and or two ACT test dates you can take if you're planning to apply early action, early decision, and four SAT tests or three test dates if you're planning to apply to regular decision deadlines. Yes, that is correct, Arjun. That's correct. So that's on that timeline. So make sure we have um, your your email so that we can send you the timeline. You can take a, take a good look at that. Um, okay, so let's talk about the events here um, where that we said, how do I take a practice ACT? Well, what are you guys doing next Wednesday? <laughs> um, Wednesday at 8 a.m. I know, I know, 8 a.m. I know you're not in school right now and we're like saying 8 a.m. for this, but the real test is at 8 a.m. So if you're not a morning person, you're not gonna be a morning person on the real test. So you wanna make sure you're taking your practice test at the same time and in a setting that really tries to follow like what the real test setting would look like. So there's a free practice ACT. When you get the slides, it'll have a registration link, um, but you probably already um, either registered or know how to register since this is through the library. Our free practice SAT is on July 10th at 8 a.m. and you can register there. Now, after those, we'll send you guys a score report and um, you can sit down 
virtually, you can Zoom with our academic coordinator, William, to actually go over the score report and figure out how can you self-study um, in a way that makes sense and which test would you maybe want to take depending on your timeline um, and just, you know, really get kind of um, that mentorship on deciding where you're going to take your testing journey. Um, okay, so that's one of the things that we'll be doing there. So here we have a bunch of resources. Again, these will be linked. We have some blog posts um, and the information of how do you get free SAT prep. Khan Academy has great, great options and free ACT prep as well. Um, I also, Rachel, if you could pop in the chat um, how to subscribe to our newsletter. I mean, we put out a newsletter. Don't worry, it's we wouldn't spam you or anything. Um, but we do put out a newsletter um, twice. So every two to three weeks. Um, and we only put in there articles that either we've written or that are important to read um, about college applications, standardized testing, study skills and habits, anything like that. Um, so just make sure um, that you, if you're interested in staying in the know, that you subscribe to our newsletter um, by clicking on strive to learn.com forward slash subscribe as Rachel just popped in the chat. We also have a blog, YouTube channel, et cetera. So feel free to check that out. But let's go to the Q&A. Um, I saw I had a question. I know I haven't answered it yet. Um, we have a question here about um, rising sophomores, right? And what you can do um, to prepare for those monsters. <laughs> yes, they are monsters. You're absolutely right. Um, okay, as a rising sophomore, honestly, you don't really need to worry about it, right? What, uh, may I ask a follow-up question? This rising sophomore, um, what level of math is this student going into? That's one of my big questions. As a rising sophomore, usually, you know, you're going to learn a lot throughout sophomore year. Math three. Okay, great. That's excellent. So you're going to learn a lot in math three. Um, I think that if you are a rising sophomore, go to school, do well in your classes, Build your extracurriculars. And with that, I mean, follow your curiosities and your passions. Don't do what you think they want to see, but really do um, what you're going to do. Right. And, and you're a rising sophomore and going into pre-calc, Sana. So everyone's a little different. That's why I asked which math class or is this person going into. Okay. So everyone who is a sophomore, I really recommend focus on your schoolwork. Get a really good GPA, you know. Get that GPA, do it. <laughs> also, make some time for extracurriculars. Get involved, try to see what you like. What's your passion? What's fun, right? This is a really important part of your college application as well is that you show consistency, curiosity, and passion across your application. And then deal with this at the end of sophomore year. Take your diagnostic tests and then study for them throughout the summer of junior year. So following the rising junior timeline that I just talked about. Now, if you... Um, have a, if you're already going to go into pre-calc, right? As Sana said, you could take the test now if you wanted to. Do you need to? Not really. Um, because you're probably still learning a lot in your English classes, right? Remember that reading comprehension, inference, um, also timing, being able to quickly pick up on things that you read and understand the depth of what you've read those are really important. That's a really important skill that you're going to be practicing all throughout sophomore year. So although you've already had the math, all the math that's going to be on this test, Sana, it's no reason to necessarily take this test now and stress yourself out about it. Um, 
I really think that you'll feel very prepared for it at the end of sophomore year, do the diagnostic test and then go and, and take your real test at the, either the summer between sophomore and junior year or, you know, at the very beginning of junior year. So Sana, that's what I would also recommend for you as a rising sophomore. Don't worry about it right now um, because you're going to learn a lot this next year that will enable you to just organically get a higher score on the test. Um, okay, we have another score here. How long are the scores effective for? So they don't time out. You could take them now and then send that in. That wouldn't be a problem. So the, the scores on the SAT and ACT, they don't stop getting accepted after two years or anything like that. So you can take it whenever you want to. Um, we also have a question here, whether the recorded meeting will be published elsewhere for future reference. Absolutely, we're gonna put this on our YouTube channel. So definitely make sure to find our YouTube channel, uh, our Strive to Learn Tutoring channel. Um, and that way you can check it out um, and make sure that, you know, you can re-watch this whole webinar. Um, we're probably also going to publish it on our podcast because we're launching a podcast called Mindful Admissions. It will hopefully be launched next month. We're really excited about it. And we'll have a lot of conversations like these. Also, a lot of conversations with experts from across the U.S. about all different kinds of things that you might want to know as you're working towards your college applications. Or even if you're not working towards college, but you're just in school trying to figure out where you want to go with your future. All right. Do we have any other questions? So someone said I should answer question 13, I think at the very beginning, someone said that I should answer question 13 on here. So as I wait to see if anything else comes in, what's the best gift, gift you've ever given? Hmm. Oh, man. I love giving gifts. I really love giving gifts. Um, and I love um, coming up with something that's, that's really unique. Um, oh man, this is really tough. Um, what's the best one? It's probably something I made for my mom. So I, I went to community college and in community college, um, I was paying uh, for my tuition and everything. And I was like, you know what? I can take another two units. So I'm going to take a jewelry making class, um, to balance out my academics, do something with my hands, do something creative. And we learned how to work with silver, how to um, do all kinds of stuff and set stones and, and do all this. So I actually made a really cool pendant for my mom. Um, my mom loves green and turquoise. So I chose a turquoise stone and she likes things that are quirky. So I chose an asymmetrical stone and I carved out of silver, this whole like intricate design. And then I set the stone in it um, and gave that to her as a gift. Um, you know, it's meaningful because I live so far away from my mom. Um, and we're really close, but we only see each other twice a year, you know, she's in Germany. Um, so I think that's definitely one of the best gifts I've given. Making something yourself, you know, that really reflects how well you know the person I think is, is important. All right. Thank you, Esmeralda. It is cute. <laughs> uh, just to my own horn here. <laughs> All right, you guys. Thank you so much for interacting with me so well. Um, I, oh, I, I saw one more. What's a good, oh my God, I missed this question. Thank you, William, for reminding me. What's a good score to put on your app? Okay, great question. This goes back to, should I submit or not, right? How do you know it's good? Remember on that slide, um, I wrote, um, let me just stop sharing so that you can see me fully. On that slide, <clears throat> I wrote that um, I am, 
I would submit my score if it's in the top 50%, right? Even if it's in the middle 50%, I would still consider it a good score, right? Because then you're at average and that's important. Um, it really depends on every single university that you're applying to. So really take a look at their admission stats and take a look at where do I fall? If I fall below the 25th percentile, mm, my score isn't so great, right? Maybe I don't submit it. But if I fall in the upper 25%, wow, my score is looking really good. I can feel really great about it. If I fall in the mid 50, it kind of depends, right? Um, it depends on your GPA. If your GPA is much higher than your score, maybe you don't submit it um, as far as where it falls, right? Um, and if your GPA is much lower, then you may want to submit it because your score is showing, hey, I can do it. So it's not just a good or bad score. It really depends on the college and it depends on your GPA as well. So really taking a look at all those factors. Okay, we have another question. I love these. I love these questions. Thank you so much. Okay, so we have someone here who's in middle school. Lisa, you're in middle school. You go to a private school. Some of your friends in public school seem to have much less homework and more time to do activities. I'm up very late at night doing homework. I'm worried I can't do what my friends who have more time to do. Okay, that's a great question, Lisa. So this is really important. You're saying you have less time for extracurriculars, right? Because you're spending a lot of time studying and, and, and just staying on top of your classes. Um, so I think that's, that is so important because one of the things that happens is when you apply to college, they are going to look at you in the context of your school. Um, they're going to look at you in the context of your school, which means that they are going to um, make sure that they see how demanding is your school. So if, so they get a whole school profile and all of that, they get your, a letter from your counselor, they get a letter from your teachers. Those are the letters of recommendation. So they're going to understand, wow, you had to do X amount of homework outside of class. So you probably had less time to engage in your extracurriculars. So they will get that context and that will mean that they're going to weigh your GPA and your transcript a little more hev heavily than your extracurriculars because they understand that, you know, there are only so many time hours in the day and they want you to still have a balanced life. I hope that answered your question. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. Okay, we have another question here. Is it true the acceptance rate for UC is better after spending two years in community college? Absolutely. What a great thing to raise. So a lot of students um, decide to, they want to go for UC and then they're really devastated when they don't get in. Man, the acceptance rates are so low. We have 12%, 13%, right? That means a hundred people are in a room and they're going to send um, like 88 of them home and only 12 get to stay. This is not a reflection of you or how awesome you are or how well you would do in college or, or even of whether or not they want you. They wanna take a lot more students, but they can't because their classrooms would explode, right? So yes, it is much easier to go to California Community College. And this is important, not just any college, but a California Community College and then transfer as a junior after having 60 units. And the, the thing is that there's, there's even a, a, a transfer guarantee program called the TAG program, T-A-G, Transfer Admissions Guarantee, that guarantees admission to a UC. There are some UCs that don't participate in, in it, like UCLA, UC Berkeley, um, but you are guaranteed to transfer into at least one UC if you do that program. 
94% of transfer students to UCs come from California community colleges. And yes, the acceptance rate is much higher for a transfer student. And also the GPA, like averages of what you, what you did in community college versus your, maybe the, the high school GPA averages, they are lower. So as long as you do your work diligently and really make sure um, to work forward um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and do well in your community college, and then you apply to UC, yes, you have a much higher chance of getting into the, the top UC of your choice if you go that way. Uh, I always say apply, you know, as a freshman, apply out of high school, but don't be super down if you don't get in because you have the wonderful opportunity to save a lot of money, go to California Community College, take wonderful classes, um, and then transfer really successfully into the UC of your choice, 100%. Um, okay, Haley's asking, if you're planning to, on taking a gap year, is it better to apply senior year or the year of your gap year or both? Great question, Haley. I did a gap year. <laughs> I applied before because that way I knew like where I would be going. So I have students who do both. Um, I do work with a lot of students who take gap years. Um, and first of all, I just want to say like, Wonderful choice. Gap years are amazing. And there's a lot of research that has shown that students who take gap years actually graduate in the four years given, have higher GPAs on average than students who didn't, and are much more motivated and excited to be in college. Um, so it's a great thing to do. When should you apply, right? So I would recommend applying during the senior year of high school, um, even if you're not gonna start, right after high school, because there's an option to defer at most universities. Some universities don't have that option, so really research your colleges. If you um, realize that, um, you know, oh, I wanna apply to 10 universities and eight of them would allow me to defer, apply to those now, you know, get it done. Get out of the way. While you're on your gap way, gap, gap year, you're not gonna want to spend all your time doing all these college applications. You're you're gonna enjoy your volunteering or your interning or your language courses, whatever it is that you plan on doing. Um, and so make sure that you're allowed to defer. Most universities will say yes to that because they love the idea of having a student who's had a gap year under their belt. Some schools say, no, you just have to reapply. And those schools you wait and you just apply after graduating high school so that you could then get in for it the following year. I hope that answered your question, Haley. Okay, we have another question that came in. Is it possible to graduate high school early? Yeah, absolutely. It depends on which high school you go to. Um, there are a lot of different routes. If that's something specific you want more guidance on, um, you know, we, we do have our, um, our college counselors who can totally help um, kind of guide you on the pros and cons of that. It's a big question because it really depends on, um, you know, which high school you're attending, why you're wanting to graduate early and uh, where you're at right now. So it's always a possibility for sure. Okay, we're at time. Thank you guys so much. This was such a pleasure. I'm always a little on edge about standing alone in a room and, and talking my butt off. Um, but you guys were such an interactive group and I just really appreciate all of the questions and the feedback. So thank you guys so, so much. Um, make sure that your email's in the chat so that we can send you, um, you know, the SAT ACD overview. We have a couple cool PDF handouts that weren't on the slides. Um, so just want to make sure you guys are getting all the resources and take those practice tests that the library is offering. Um, you'll see us again. We're the ones administering them. Um, we really want to make sure you're taking advantage of 
all the free opportunities at your fingertips. So please, 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 um, you know, sign up for those, register on the website. Thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As we continue to produce episodes of this podcast, you can follow along on our website, www.strivetolearn.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for future episodes, and don't forget to subscribe. As we're launching this podcast, we'd appreciate any support you can give, including likes, downloads, shares, and good reviews. Got something you want to learn about? Ask us questions in the comments, or DM us on Instagram at strive2learntutoring. Get the latest updates on the college admissions world and be the first to receive exclusive offers when you subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, www.strivetolearn.com. Thanks for sticking around, and I'll see you next time.